0: Our Savior, our Lord, and our life.
1: Dear ones, we are blessed that you've chosen to join us again today on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm John Russell. And I sort of serve as the host. My job is to keep Pastor Frank Friedman in line and on track. How are you today, my friend? Oh, it's a beautiful day. How are you doing, my friend? I tell you, every day is a blessing. Especially when I get up early in the morning, I get outside when the temperature is still only about 50 or 55 degrees before the sun comes up. <laughs> so uh, I enjoy the mornings these days. Well, Frank, in this episode, we are going to continue our conversation about what do you do when the church you attend just doesn't seem to teach the new covenant very clearly. Or maybe they teach a mixture, a little bit of law, a little bit of grace, a little bit of sinner, a little bit of saint, you know, the gumbo that kind of gets pitched out there. And I want to begin today by looking again at Apostle Paul. We talked about him last time. We looked at his attitude change and how that was reflected in his dealings with the Corinthians. We saw it in Acts 17. We saw it in Acts 21. But what I want to do today, Frank, is take a little bit different look and take a dive into what it was like to be Paul at that point and the relative lack of like-minded fellowship that he certainly felt. You know, we talked about this last time. After his incident with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he spent three years in Arabia and Damascus learning beginning to learn the new covenant. You know, this know-it-all Pharisee who knew the law inside out suddenly gets turned on its head and he's got to wrap his mind around what Jesus Christ has told him. And so he eventually settles, I'm doing a little bit of history now, he eventually settles back in Antioch and we read in Acts 13 that he became one of the teachers there in that local assembly And the Holy Spirit set him aside, along with Barnabas, for something different. And uh, that's something different we now know as his first missionary journey. So Paul gets set aside for something special. But we later see that not all the folks who hung around with Paul, not all the apostles or those who traveled and ministered with him, really seem to understand grace as well as Paul did. Here are just a few examples, Frank. In Galatians 2, we see that Peter was confused in that dining room scene, and he actually dragged Barnabas down too. We see that when Paul went to Jerusalem in Acts 15, for what we now know was a Jerusalem council, his own people, his believing Pharisees also struggled with grace. So, Frank, What do you think it was like to be Paul in that early stage of his ministry?
2: Oh, John, I think we got a small glimpse of it ourselves when our eyes were first opened to the finished work of Christ. And you're sitting there going, wait a minute. What about all the mighty men of God who've not taught this? And you begin to wonder, did I get it right? I see it in Scripture But when nobody else is saying it, there's a real fear that you're stepping out into foreign ground and maybe missing it. And so Paul had two real powerful things going for him, John. One was that in those first three years, the Spirit of God took him down to Arabia and taught him personally. And you can't get any better teacher than the spirit of God. We know in John 14, Jesus said the spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what Jesus taught. So he had that. And then he had also the Jerusalem council, which when he went there and brought Titus with him as a test case and the Jerusalem council affirmed him, yes, You are teaching the correct gospel, and yes, the Gentiles are being saved through it, and yes, keep doing what you're doing. Those are two wonderful things, but when trouble comes, and my goodness, Paul had trouble wherever he went. I've heard one person say that wherever Paul went, it was either riot or revival, (laughs) and sometimes both. And You know, you get thrown into prison, you get beaten with rods, you get whipped, you get stoned until believed dead. And maybe he really was dead and got resurrected. We don't know. You can easily begin to doubt, am I really on the right path? Am I really saying the right words? And you know, John, all we got to do is look to John the Baptist to see that. Jesus affirmed John. And, you know, why don't you share a little bit about
1: that? Oh, you know, you and I were talking about this before we began this recording. And what impressed me as I read the circumstances, the the few circumstances that describe Paul's life early on, after he began to understand the new covenant, what impressed me, Frank, was that he had fairly few people who spoke into his lives you know the holy spirit Mm -hmm. did of course and the uh, jerusalem council confirmed it but i tell you man when you get out there in the desert and you're facing obstacle after obstacle you got to wonder how long it's going to take before the enemy shows up and says well you know did you really understand correctly Mm -hmm. after all if this is such an incredible blessing Shouldn't your circumstances be a bit different right now? And Mm. I think back at John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, who knew who he was. He saw the dove, Frank. He heard Mm. the voice. He said, my goodness, I shouldn't be doing this. You need to be baptizing me. Mm. And then not long after that, John gets crossways with Herod. And he winds up in prison and his circumstances look really dark. And you Mm got to know that the enemy was in there saying, boy, are you sure you got it right? Did you really blow it? Did you get the wrong one? And so he sends his guys out to ask Jesus, are you really the one? So doubt, even in the mind of John, who'd Mm -hmm. seen and experienced all he had seen, Doubt can get established. So there is no one who's immune to this, my friend. And so when I see Paul's experience, the Jerusalem council confirming to him that he was right must have been like a steel rod in his spine, firming him against the opposition that was sure to come.
2: Yeah, you know, John, the first time I ever taught
1: that passage, I
2: believe it's Matthew 11, But John, I titled that message, Doubts in the Dungeon. Mm. And, you know, the dungeon has a way of being used by the enemy. Because we have, even though we know that Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Even though we know, he says, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. When that tribulation comes, the enemy's right there to sow those seeds you must have missed the message, or this wouldn't have been happening to you. And so, certainly with Paul, those having that Jerusalem council, having that Holy Spirit teaching, having that Damascus Road experience, certainly helped. But you know, John, nothing helps greater than having allies, oh, friends yes. who are in the mix with you. Yes, and Paul fortunately
1: had that. He did. But when he first started, my friend, the elders there in Antioch selected out Paul and Barnabas. They went on their first missionary journey. They took a young man named John Mark. And he left partway through the journey. And then later on, they're getting ready to send him on a second journey. And Barnabas says, I'll go with you, Paul. I want to take John Mark. And (laughs) Paul says, no way. That's not happening. And so they kind of got at odds and separated. So there you go. Paul finds himself without like-minded fellowship. So what does he do? This is what really got me, Frank. He began to cultivate it. He knew the truth. He knew who had spoken to him, who had taught him, who had confirmed that what he knew was true. So he began in his ministry to cultivate folks. So he cultivated people like Silas, Timothy. Mm -hmm. Frank, he grew his own circle of like-minded believers, women and men, like Phoebe, Mm -hmm. Lydia, Erastus, Gaius, Trophimus, Luke. You read through his epistles, you see these names all over the place, and there often isn't much said about them except you know that Paul has poured into each one of these and they are, so to speak, his posse, his peeps, his tight group of like-minded believers with whom they can encourage one another, teach one another, exhort one another. So he made it a priority, Frank, to cultivate his own group. And what came to mind as I was thinking about this was, What you did when you first came to Quail Ridge Bible Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Mm -hmm. you pulled together a handful of us and began Mm -hmm. to pour into us using Gillum's The Life Series and a few other things. But you did that very same thing, Frank. And here we are 30 some years later and uh, (laughs) we're still walking hand in hand. So this approach, while it's not easy, certainly has long-bearing fruit, doesn't it? Mm.
2: Paul kind of spelled it out for us, John, that methodology. He said, teach faithful men, who in turn will teach other faithful men. And that didn't really originate with Paul, certainly didn't originate with me. It was the master's plan, Jesus. If you look at him, John, you know, he spoke to the multitudes, He had the 500, he had the 70, then he had the 12, and within the 12, he had the three, James, Peter, and John. That really is our marching orders. We can't disciple the crowd. We can speak to the crowd, teach the crowd, but we can't disciple them. Not even the 500, the 70, somewhat with the 11, But it's that small tight group, John, where life begets life. And you can't do that without intimate relationship. And you can't have intimate relationship with crowd. So it's really the master's plan. Paul implemented it, we implemented it. Life begetting life pouring, receiving life from God and then pouring that life into others. That life then received, that life then released back to you. And all of a sudden you have a band of like-minded people so that now you can stand together so you don't fall
1: alone. Huge, huge concept. Indeed. And I found it amazing, Frank, that Paul didn't necessarily have to have all the members of this band with him at all times. Mm -hmm. He developed a network of believers across the Roman Empire, just like you and I have a network of like-minded companions, like-minded ministers throughout this country and states all across. In fact, I just had a great conversation last week with a counselor up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and he (laughs) understands Christ's life. He's teaching the message. And so how exciting is that? So we have a network of believers across the country, but we also, both of us, have small intimate groups into whom we are laboring to pour. What we understand is the life of Christ into their lives so that they, too, Can mature up and then at one point launch to have their own discipleship group. So the model works, my friend. I've seen it work in you, I've seen it work in me. And of course, it's the way Jesus did it and the way Paul did it. So I guess as I look at this as someone who has been to a lot of churches that haven't really focused on the new covenant, it's so important to realize these key truths. You're not alone. What the Spirit has taught you is true. And you are to cultivate a network of like-minded believers so that you will never be alone. They're always there to hold you up just when you're raising up your staff to keep the sun up in the air and let Joshua win the battle. You got two guys or two gals, one on each arm holding up your arms so that you're never alone. Frank, this is the picture. Now, I don't have a thousand of these like-minded friends, but I got more than a handful of people who would do practically anything for me Mm -hmm. uh, because they know the same Jesus I do. Wow, how cool is that?
2: And John, it is so important because of the mission that we have. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one. When one is weak, the other can be strong. When one falls down, the other can pick them up. This is so necessary because of the mission. We're taking the gospel to people who may not necessarily receive it. You look at Paul, when he went on those missionary journeys, there was receptivity, there was also antagonism, but having that band of brothers kept him and that band of sisters, encouraged him picked him up when he fell down was strong when he was weak so he could continue the journey and john in our world today that's the same mission and the same great need you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that the church in america is in trouble people are leaving the church in droves and we have to wonder Who's going to go to them like Paul did and bring the life to them like Paul did, even when they're antagonistic like Paul did? So we've got to have that team to encourage us to continue the fight, because sometimes, as we've noted before, we're fighting for people. But the only way we seem to be able to fight for them is to fight against them. And it's not easy. And it would be better to just leave the church and go have our little holy huddle. But like Romans 10 says, John, how are they going to hear without a preacher? We've got to realize this isn't about us living a life of comfort. It's about us being ambassadors to a foreign country. And sometimes the church is so lost in legalism. It's a foreign country. But who's going to win them if we don't? That's right.
1: Frank, I've got one more thought I want us to chew on today before we wrap this up. And it's a passage from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I don't want to spend all of our time reading that whole passage beginning in verse 9. But it's basically a description of how Paul views some of his like-minded relationships that he's got. The thing that impressed me most, my friend, is that he needed them. Even after all Paul had experienced, all he'd done, all he'd seen, uh, churches he started, the epistles he's written, he's at the end of his ministry, he still craved like-minded fellowship. He had Luke, but he wanted more. So this need is a God-focused need. God places in us so that it's not good for us to be alone. We need to encourage one another. This is so critical, and Paul felt that perhaps more than any other time than in that dungeon in Rome in 2 Timothy 4 as he faced the end of his life.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the body concept, John, you know, that we all are a part of something bigger than ourselves, and we supply to that body, but that body supplies to us. And again, right in Romans, even in that first chapter, He says to them, I can't wait to get to Rome to share with you, but also to receive from you. And certainly in Paul's circumstances there in that deep, dark dungeon, he needed others. You know, John was fascinated. There was a guy I know who was a pastor and he was candidating for a church. And one of the questions was asked of him. You know, when people are struggling, they'll come to the pastor. When you struggle, who do you go to? And the man's response just oh, cut like a knife to my heart. He said, I have the word of God in my wife. I don't need anyone. And, oh, that's so tragic. And it's so arrogant. And John, he didn't last. The ministry fell apart. He failed to understand that we're a part of something that's bigger than we are as individuals. I have a little stuffed animal, John, on my bookcases. It's a lamb. But the lamb is wearing shepherd clothes. Uh, Janet gave it to me. And it sits there as a reminder. The shepherd is himself a sheep. (laughs) We are a part of the flock and we need the flock. And, you know, John, there's probably nobody that epitomized that better than a guy named Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. Paul said that he actually had to send that man home because he had served Paul so faithfully and had spent his life so diligently that he got sick. And the word he used was parabolu amai. He risked his life for Paul. He gambled his life in order to love and serve Paul in his time of need. That's going all the way.
1: (laughs) Oh, it, it certainly is, my friend. And, you know, you told me a story of a little later in history, back when the plague was rampaging through Europe and Northern Africa about a group of believers who had this Mm. same mindset where they're willingly exposed themselves to danger, to help others. And uh, you told me a story. So tell our listeners about that same story.
2: (laughs) In the third century, mid 200s, I believe it was, John, maybe you can correct me when we wrap this up. There was a group of people who were inspired by the life of Epaphroditus. And that word paraboluomai is the word Paul chose that he gambled his life, he risked his life. And so taking him as their example, they called themselves the Parabolani, the gamblers, the riskers. And when plagues broke out, and just like at the New York City Twin Towers 9-11, when everybody was running out of those towers, the New York City firemen went in they were the modern-day Parabalani. Well, back in that third century, when the plagues broke out and people would flee the cities, the Parabalani went in, risking their lives to share Christ with those people before they died. Wow. Wow. <laughs> we said that in harmony. Wow. wow.
1: As we wrap this up, my friend, I'm sitting here thinking about the fruit born in the lives of the relatively small handful of people that Paul cultivated as his like-minded fellows. Just incredible. I guess the take-home message for me is that it's not my job to have a ministry that reaches 10,000 people. My job as an ambassador, we've used that phrase several times now, we'll talk about it more next episode, But my job as an ambassador is to bring Jesus to the person right in front of me, plain and simple. And who knows what fruit the Holy Spirit will bear in the life of that person once they see the truth of the grace, mercy, and love of God. And they Mm -hmm. see his life in them like a racehorse in the starting gate ready to charge out and just run the race to bring glory to God in in worship and service. And so I look at that and one person is as important, maybe even more important than 10,000. And so to those who are listening, who are struggling with not having a quote unquote church home, neither did Paul. Paul built his fellowship of believers wherever he went. That's an encouragement to all of us to do the same. All right, my friend, wrap us up today.
2: John, maybe back full circle to where you started today. And you said, it's difficult to be in churches where there's legalism and bondage being ministered. And in fact, we understand that. I hear people saying, I can't sit under that. Well, cultivate a small group of like-minded people build each other up in the finished work of Christ so that you live in the power of the Holy Spirit and then maybe go back to church because you know what? With Christ in you, you can sit under any kind of teaching. You don't have to accept that teaching. And John, we have to look at the church. Who's going to reach them? If everybody who gets their eyes opened to the new covenant leaves the church, how will they hear without a preacher? I guess I would ask the question, John, where are the parabolani today who will go in when everyone else is running out? Those who will risk their lives and play the role of gambler to bring life to those who are locked in bondage. Where are the
1: parabolani today? Good question. I know we're running out of time, but I've got to bring this up. You mentioned a step would be to be involved in a small group. Well, that's mm-hmm. the strategy that we have followed for a number of years. And we've been involved here in Tucson with a small group for about three years already. And we have just reached a point where they're interested to watch with us the Life video series by Bill and Annabelle Gill. And so Mm -hmm. we've started that. It's available on YouTube, so you don't need to buy the DVDs. It's all free. You can download the study guide for free. It's there. But I tell you, had we just walked into that group on day one and said, this is what we need to do, we would have gotten nowhere. We cultivated friendships and built relationships so that after a couple of years, you reach a point where, They're ready to go much deeper and see what this new covenant really has to offer. So it does take time, but we will bear fruit if we faint not. Amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. We invite you, please check out our website. You'll find us at ourresolutehope.com lots of articles, devotionals, ebooks, uh, etc., newsletters uh, you'll find there. Please drop us a line, sign up for our newsletter, let us know what you think. We're revamping our web page, so there may be some new things there, so take a look around. And all of it's focused on Jesus Christ not only as our Lord and our savior, but as our very life. And as always, we remind you about this verse from Hebrews chapter 6 that we have a hope for an anchor for our souls. No matter where you're struggling, no matter what you're facing, no matter how much you feel like you want to give up in your church search. Remember, you are anchored to Jesus Christ, a living hope, a blessed hope, a steadfast, immovable, bedrock, resolute hope. So today and always, no matter what you're facing, choose hope and choose Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today. And you know that no matter what you're facing, He offers you Himself, His own life. He wants to live His life with you, in you, and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope